First Coast Connect with Melissa Ross is sponsored in part by Baptist Health. Florida Republicans say they prefer Ron DeSantis over Donald Trump when it comes to who should be the next president. Good Monday morning. We're live with you from Studio 2. I'm Melissa Ross, and this is First Coast Connect. Thanks for listening. Just ahead, a closer look at a new UNF poll that looks at the 2024 election and some other issues, everything from guns to marijuana to abortion. That's coming up then later. We'll recap all of the action at the players, chat with city council candidate Joshua Hicks, and yes, we have a ticket giveaway, so keep listening for that. It's all ahead. But first this hour... Two Florida men on the Republican side of the aisle are the focus of a new poll out from UNF's Public Opinion Research Laboratory. The poll finds a majority of Republicans in the Sunshine State prefer Governor Ron DeSantis over former President Donald Trump in a hypothetical 2024 matchup. And there's a lot more in the numbers, too. It turns out most Florida voters really aren't fans of what the Republican-controlled state legislature is up to these days on issues ranging from guns to abortion to marijuana. Michael Binder is faculty director at UNF's Public Opinion Research Lab and joins us now in studio. Good to see you again. Good morning. Thanks for having me. And folks, it's Monday, so you know what that means. (laughs) Things can sometimes go wrong as you uh, head out on those rainy roads. We regret to tell you our phone lines are not working, so we cannot take calls at the moment. Instead, send us an email to First Coast Connect at WJCT.org or a tweet at Melissa and Jax or let us know your thoughts on our Facebook page. All right. So you were just here, it feels like, just the other day talking about our local uh, races for mayor and city council. Now you've got a poll out that's getting national attention. As you asked voters around the state, a lot of interesting questions, beginning with registered Republicans asked about Who's their preference in the 2024 Republican presidential primary? I guess it's not a surprise that Ron DeSantis beats Donald Trump in Florida. No. When we asked the kind of the litany of Republican potential candidates, including Nikki Haley, who's announced and a handful of other folks, uh, DeSantis came out 52 to 27. So plus 25 over Donald Trump. And again, right. It's his home state. People in Florida know this guy. Uh, They, you know, there's. There can be some benefit to having your governor become a president. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, federal money tends to flow to your state. So that's not shocking. Uh, the, the interesting mm-hmm. point was when we knocked it down to a just head to head between Trump and DeSantis, DeSantis was up 31 points, 59 to 28. So Trump didn't pick up many of those kind of also ran points. Some of them went to Ron DeSantis and a bunch went to the I don't know category. Uh, but I think that kind of feeds into the narrative that maybe the more candidates that are out there, maybe the better for Trump that it might be. You know, the poll numbers, uh, as you say, they're not super surprising in the Sunshine State. They didn't go over well at (laughs) Mar-a-Lago. Donald Trump has been attacking Ron DeSantis on his truth social platform over uh, his standing in the state and other issues. Disney, uh, that's been really interesting to watch, to say the least. Yeah, and, and I think that's the that's the one thing, if if you are not a vested member of the Republican Party and you're just kind of an observer on the outside waiting for Trump and DeSantis to actually go toe-to-toe. Right now, you know, Trump had historically been throwing little barbs. He's getting more aggressive as it, as DeSantis' run becomes more real. And, and I think having, you know, once we get through legislative session and the resign-the-run law gets changed and he actually comes out and announces, I think it's going to get very, very interesting from an observation standpoint. There are some people around Donald Trump who used to be in the employ of Ron DeSantis, particularly Jacksonville political operative Susie Wiles. She worked for DeSantis. She fell out with DeSantis. She's now working for Trump. That will be an interesting sort of inside baseball Florida political story to watch as these two begin to ramp up their campaigns. The factor of these consultants who know Ronald DeSantis well, know his weaknesses, know his pain points, and are now going to try to use that knowledge to help Donald Trump, who, of course, was impeached and not reelected and is the subject of multiple criminal investigations. Yeah, and and that's something that you know your maybe your average voter isn't paying attention to the inside baseball of 
these political campaigns and and they can be a little bit incestuous and, and we, we saw that locally uh, with the mayor's race and how one person's confidant went to work for the other mayoral candidate and everything got exposed those kinds of things can happen the other kind of inside baseball thing to look at is uh, we have a sitting senator that's going to be up for re-election as well and Rick Scott and Ron DeSantis are far from friendly and that's going to be kind of fascinating to see how that plays out going forward too do you think Senator Rick Scott uh, making highly controversial comments and even putting in writing a plan to review all federal legislation every five years that, of course, resulted in a text that he was trying to sunset Medicare and Social Security. Do you think that will hurt him in his reelection bid in Florida? Is there an opening for someone to uh, knock him off course in his plan to be reelected Florida senator? I, th- I think the short answer is probably no, unless the Democrats come out with somebody that we, we just haven't seen or thought of or heard about. The, the problem is going to be most of these races are dominated by the top of the ticket, and there's going to be a, a Republican on the ballot running for president who's going to gobble up the vast majority of Republican votes, whether it's Trump, whether it's DeSantis, whether it's Nikki Haley or somebody else. And it's going to be really difficult for that person to cross party lines and then vote for a Democrat in the Senate as well. So mm-hmm. I, I would see him in a really good position for reelection. All right. Let's talk about some of the other findings from your poll. You talked to voters about everything from marijuana to abortion to education to guns. Let's begin with guns. The majority of Florida voters of all political persuasions, really oppose what's going on in Tallahassee right now. It's called the permitless carry bill. It would allow Floridians to carry a concealed weapon without a permit or a license. The vast majority of Florida voters are against that. Here's a tweet from a listener. I have yet to meet anyone who thinks allowing unlicensed, untrained people to openly carry weapons in Florida is a good idea. Even my conservative friends and coworkers think it's a bad idea and that it should be put on the ballot for a public vote. So Florida does not want this permitless carry bill, yet the legislature is barreling right ahead. Well, Florida might not want, like, might not want it. Republicans in Florida might not want it. 77% are opposed to it, 67% strongly. But even amongst Republicans, 62% are opposed to this, which is you know a, a really big number. And part of the problem is, Things that are happening in Tallahassee, this legislative session, are not entirely about Florida. It's entirely about a race that's going to be happening in the spring of 2024 nationally in the Republican primary for president. And these are issues, guns, abortion. These are issues that Republicans need to have bona fides on for the base of the Republican Party that votes in primaries. This isn't your everyday average Republican, the folks that we polled, right? We polled all registered Republicans. These are the folks that show up in these weird elections that happen not in November, and they tend to be much more ideologically extreme. So the legislature is operating in the service of Ron DeSantis' presidential ambitions, not serving the will of the people. Is that what you're saying? What, I, what I'm saying is that they have other ideas of what might be important at this point in time. Well, look, look at the numbers, Mike. Uh, let's talk about, we mentioned guns, uh, marijuana. 70% of Floridians support legalization, full legalization of cannabis. 70%. 70% and 57% of Republicans, right? This yeah. is this is not an issue that's being pushed by Democrats and non NPAs that don't show up and vote. This is, you know, everybody's supported this. And you know, there's there's a lot of evidence across the country that if it's done right, it can be done well. Uh, there's also evidence that if you don't do it right, there can be problems involved. But those are those are things to think about. And there, I mean, I, I don't think there's any doubt that there's no chance this comes up for a vote anytime soon in the Florida legislature. Let's talk about education. Sixty one percent of Florida voters oppose a bill that would prohibit Florida public colleges and universities from supporting campus activities that promote, excuse me, that promote DEI, diversity, equity and inclusion. And this is one of the the issues that might make a lot more sense from the legislature's perspective. Yeah, 61% of Floridians might be opposed to that, but 56, 56% of Republicans are supportive of that. So when you have a supermajority in control of the legislature and the governor's office, you're obviously going to push the issues that are 
your party likes. And, and this happens to be one of them. And abortion. What did the poll find when you asked voters around the state about restricting access to abortion? Well, abortion was a, a little bit different. So unfortunately, the, the bill that is being filed or has been filed uh, in the legislature was six weeks with exceptions for rape and incest. And they waited. Limiting li- abortion to limiting. six weeks before most women even know they're pregnant, by Correct. the way. Be- because they, they, they start the clock at the time of your last period, which is often two weeks before ovulation, which so, yeah. Yeah, most yeah. women don't realize they're pregnant till they're about eight weeks along. Right. And, and that that leads you to a situation where, oh, hello, whoops. And now you're in a position where there's nothing you can do about it. The, the thing is, we included the except no exceptions for rape and incest on our survey. The bill being filed has those exceptions because the bill wasn't filed literally until the day that the legislature started. But there's wild opposition to that. We had a poll out last year that had six weeks and, and there was opposition to it. Even, you know, it's 75 percent of Floridians are opposed to a bill like that. But even 60 percent of Republicans are opposed to a bill without mm-hmm. the exceptions. Now, with the exceptions, that would move a little bit and it might be closer. But again, uh, Florida has never been a state that's been extremely pro-life, anti-choice, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but this is one of those check marks that you need when you're running for office in a Republican primary for president. We're speaking with UNF pollster Mike Binder. Our phones are on the fritz this Monday morning, so tweet me at Melissa and Jax. Send us an email at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. Getting your comments on Facebook as well. Here's one from Chris. Why do Republicans, champions of small government, support an authoritarian who can get the legislature to do anything he wants with no discussion? That's from Chris on Facebook. Yeah, um, well, a lot of those particular legislatures feel like they're indebted to him for his election. Think locally, right? Keon Michael, who was a nowhere in her state legislative race in the primary, gets his endorsement. And next thing you know, she wins handily over somebody who had been around Jacksonville politics for a while and somebody who was in office in Jack's Beach. Another listener says, uh, don't forget, DeSantis won by nearly 20 points. So what about this dichotomy in the state? On the one hand, DeSantis was reelected in a landslide. On the other hand, voters don't like the policies he's pushing in his second term. Right. And, and it's always important to think about his almost 20 point victory, which was significant. I do not want to discount that. But the reason that he got that victory, the scope that it was, was because Democrats didn't show up to vote. You know, less than half of Democrats turned out to vote when over 60, 65 percent of Republicans did show up to vote. So that's where you get those those big numbers from. And yes, just because you're voting for somebody doesn't always mean you agree with all of their policies. You might dislike the other guy. Uh, and and that's real, too. It is striking, though, frankly, to see the voters so seriously out of step with this legislature. And, of course, due to gerrymandering, voter suppression, low turnout in off-year elections, is it fair to, do you agree with some political observers who see Florida as living now under what they term minority rule. A minority is imposing its will on the majority on these issues. They are not what the majority of the voters want. It's true. uh, But when you're thinking about elected officials, it's who shows up and who casts votes. And, you know, we're looking at a mayoral race happening literally a week from tomorrow that's going on now with early voting and, and mail ballots and you know we're hopeful that we get to 30% turnout for that. Yeah. And and let's talk about the fact too as you mentioned uh, the Republicans both locally here in Duval County and statewide over uh, many years have really perfected a turnout machine. They are more reliable voters. They are more likely to turn out even in off-year elections. Uh, by the way, Nikki Freed who's been appointed the new chair of the Florida Democratic Party She's apparently coming to town today to get uh, help turn out the vote for Democrats in the mayoral race. Um, but, you know, as you look at her task uh, leading the Florida Democrats, I can't imagine a more difficult job right now uh, in politics than trying to revive really what's become a moribund 
statewide party, the Florida Democratic Party? Is there even a pulse? Uh, the short answer is no. Uh, and part of the problem is that there has been a lack of investment in infrastructure. And it's and listen, it's difficult if you're not in a position where you can give out goodies, right? It, it's hard to motivate people to spend the countless hours of volunteer time if at the end of the road you're not winning elections and you can't get a job and you don't have access to power and you don't have influence. So so it's difficult, but no, the the, the Florida Democratic Party machine uh, is is absent anything meaningful at this point. Locally, we mm-hmm. saw that once Corinne Brown kind of fell off the stage and her political machine went away, uh, even the local Democratic Party has been, you know, missing a lot. There was a, even a little flap over her. Uh, it was not real, but there was this fake uh, mailer that purported to show that Corrine Brown was giving out her quick picks for local offices. And she had to put out a statement saying, I didn't do that. You know, I think you, you, just when you think you've seen it all in Duval <laughs> political shenanigans, you realize you have not. There's always someone out there willing to try a new dirty trick that hasn't been tried yet. Oh, it's, it's great. You know, it was hearkening back to the old days of, you know, eight years ago. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let me ask you, though, Mike, the legislature, as you say, is pursuing priorities that would ostensibly really benefit Governor DeSantis in a Republican primary race against Donald Trump. He will be able to tell extremely conservative Republican-based voters what he's done when it comes to K-12 through education, higher education, guns, abortion, other issues. Marijuana, you, you pulled on, although he hasn't really talked much about that. Uh, but let's talk about the legislature's priorities. Because according to your poll, when Florida voters were asked what they think is the most important problem facing the state, the majority said affordable housing. Housing costs. Affordable housing. And the legislature, where are they on this? Nowhere. Yeah, they're not doing anything about this huge problem that is literally turning people out into the streets. We get emails every week from people saying, I'm about to be a homeless. I can't afford my rent. What do I do? Who do I turn to? How can I get some help? Help me, please. What agency can I call? We get those emails all the time. Yeah. And, and where's the legislature? Nowhere. And and much like the the homeowners insurance market, they've had two special sessions in the last year plus and nothing. Uh, they've, they've done nothing meaningful on any of these issues. And, and I don't want to portray this as the legislature is completely bowing to Ron DeSantis. And this is solely about a Republican primary run, because. You alluded to it earlier when you were talking about gerrymandering and the way the way districts are drawn. You know, most legislators are not concerned about generating votes from the middle or from the opposing party. Most legislators, their only real threat is in a primary. And if they get primaried, that's where the problem is. So they need to cater to the base that shows up in August in these really weird elections. That's not a democratic republic as the founders conceived it at all. It's just not. And it's not it's not only true of Florida. Sure. It's elsewhere. I, yeah. I don't this is not unique to Florida. Uh, it's exacerbated in this state, I would say. How would you say gerrymandering in this state compares to other states when you talk about extreme levels of gerrymandering? Like, you know, for example, in Wisconsin, uh, that state is so gerrymandered that voters can vote uh, support something at 60 to 70 percent and they can get nowhere with the legislature. That's an extreme gerrymander yeah are we there we're, we're real close to there and new york had changes made their their state supreme court uh, overturned uh, their redistricting plan last cycle which led to in in concert with florida's gerrymander led to republicans having control of the house right so so these things are meaningful and the choices that are made by oftentimes legislators drawing their own districts at a variety of different levels. We saw, again, right, Jacksonville is the example, the shining example of all the problems statewide. Yeah, and and when you look at the Duval County numbers, there are more registered Democrats than Republicans in Duval County, although a lot of the Democrats sometimes vote Republican. At the same time, In the pandemic, a lot of people have moved here, a lot of younger people. This is the youngest major city in Florida. I don't know if people realize that. The demographics here are interesting and they're changing. 
this March 21st election, uh, where we have a number of new faces on the ballot, they're they're trying to capitalize on those changes. I guess the question is, will they be successful? Yeah, my, my, whenever candidates ask me about young voters, I uh, I always say, if you're banking on young voters, <laughs> you're going to need a bailout. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it, I, I put no faith in young voters to show up at their numbers. And and that's one of the problems that, that newer candidates have. And that's maybe why you see in surveys and polls, policy preferences different than elected officials because people aren't showing up to vote. Folks, let's say it again. We're going to have a candidate on in a minute. Uh, the election is March 21st. Early voting's underway now. So anything else in your poll that you really found interesting or noteworthy? Well, I think you know, the, the, the things that you, we, we talked about them, some of the differences between the policies and the people that we've actually elected here in the state and, and where those differences are. But I think the, the one thing, in, the marijuana numbers, 70% for legalization is, is really a big number. Those are the kinds of numbers that can get people thinking about ballot measures. And if you have a ballot measure for legalization, that will bring some people to the polls that would not show up otherwise. And there is a long, there's, there's history in that. There's, there's scientific evidence to support that. Mm-hmm. That's something that could really potentially help a Democratic candidate that's supportive of a pro-legalization platform in 2024. And there's a push to get those signatures. But of there course, is. the legislature has raised the bar on getting these constitutional amendments passed, made it much harder. Right. And, and, and you, you look around, and you wonder why. Well, it's because... policies are passing that they're not in favor of. And, you know, as you diversify power by giving citizens the ability to pass their own policies, you necessarily take power away from legislatures. Legislatures want to consolidate that power and keep that for themselves. Well, it's always good to get your insights. Thanks for coming out on this rainy morning to chat with us. Hey, thanks for having me. He's Mike Bender, faculty director of UNF's Public Opinion Research Laboratory. Much more still ahead later in the hour. Don't miss our ticket giveaway to the upcoming Celebrity Chefs event. I'm one of the chefs. I'm kind of excited about that. Uh, Also, a recap of all of the action at the Players' Championship. But up next, a conversation with Joshua Hicks, one of the candidates running for the Jacksonville City Council. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Well, early voting is already underway for Jacksonville's March 21st municipal elections. This morning, we're continuing our series profiling local candidates running for office. Joshua Hicks, Democrat and candidate for Jacksonville City Council at Large Group 2, joins us now in studio. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good to have you. You too. We reached out to your opponent, incumbent Councilman Ron Salem. Haven't heard back from him, but we hope to have him on before the election. So you're running at large group two. This is a countywide election. You're introducing yourself to a big swath of voters. <laughs> Tell us about why you decided to run. Yeah, absolutely. I'm on everyone's ballot. So if you're going to vote, uh, you'll see my name. Um, and I decided to run back in June of 2021. So I've been in this a while. I believe you just had Mike Bender on talking about making an investment in the community. And that's what I've been doing over the last almost two years, making an investment in the community, talking about the issues. Um, that are being ignored by the current uh, city council and city hall um, and getting out there and talking to as many people as I can. What issues do you believe the current office holders at city hall are ignoring for Jacksonville? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, first and foremost, you just talked about it, the housing crisis. We have one. We have council members here who admit there's a crisis, but they're not doing anything really about it. 
They're not putting the funding that we need. They're not addressing the zoning laws. They're not putting resources into the nonprofits that are already on the ground doing the work. Um, and we need to we need to act on the housing crisis. We need to uh, support infrastructure. We need to bring downtown density to get people downtown so that we can develop these great projects that we have downtown. And then we need to promote equity among the communities because there are districts still in our community being left behind while some districts get all the resources. How would, let's begin with housing. Sure. What are specific steps that the city council could take to bring relief and how do we afford them? Yeah, absolutely. So first and foremost, I called when we got the American Rescue Funds um, last year uh, from the federal government, I called for instead of putting the 70 million that we put into the reserves um, to invest that into uh, the housing crisis. It was money that was supposed to be spent last year, not be placed on hold for the next mayor. So uh, that's $70 million right there that we could be investing into our community, into the housing crisis, by getting it into the nonprofits like Ability Housing, List Jacks, Habitat for Humanity, who are on the ground right now doing the work. Mm -hmm. You have to change the permitting and zoning laws so we can build different types of units and different types of development downtown. Mm -hmm. You have to incentivize developers to make sure that they're wanting to put uh, you know, 10 20% of their units towards affordable and workforce housing. These are all solutions that we can do as a city council, but we have to get the 10 votes to do it. And right now, there's been small steps done by the council to address the crisis, but none of it is making a real impact on people where in my opponent's district um, in Arlington, rent went up $800 a month last year. 61%. That's a lot of money on a monthly basis that families can't afford, and the council has sat on their hands and not really acted on it, even while saying there's an emergency that we need to, we need to address. You also are campaigning on what you call quality of life and yes. infrastructure issues. How would we pay to improve in those areas? Because, of course, uh, this is a Republican supermajority on the city council, and they're not of a mindset where they want to raise taxes, for the most part, to deal with some of these needs. So if you are elected at large as a Democrat, how will you press these issues and how would you make an impact in those areas? You would be in the minority. I would be. Um, and it's going to take bipartisan support. I know I can work with certain Republican members of the council already on infrastructure. They've been pushing projects for years. Um, they haven't gotten the support on some of those uh, you know, projects to actually get them uh, moving forward. I think um, in terms of the funding, we're not a poor city. We are a wealthy city. We, have, we do not have the political will to invest in our city. So I think we can take some of the money that we have in our reserves, 300, about $330 million at the moment. Um, some of that is the $70 million that we got from the American Rescue Fund. Um, we know we're going to get additional resources from the federal government over the next few years. Um, invest that into infrastructure. We have a gas tax that was recently passed by the voters um, or uh, by the council. Um, that is uh, obviously a tax that is going to be over 30 years, a billion dollars worth of revenue. We've spent about half of it so far on septic tank removal, which is vitally important. We need to actually remove them all. We can't just pretend we are. Um, we've spent that on the Emerald Trail, which is a program that I absolutely support because it's going to connect our park systems. Um, we still have about $500 million of that that we can put into our community. So it's much easier to fund something $100 million over 10 years than it is to ask for $100 million in one year. We need to make a long-term plan for investing in our community, and that starts with fixing our streets, sidewalks, um, our food deserts out east, and actually addressing the needs of our communities when they're demanding action. You're also campaigning on doing a better job of attracting companies mm -hmm. to relocate to Jacksonville and supporting small businesses. What do you think we need to do differently? Yeah, so we need to uh, bring density downtown. And I think one of the things we can do there is making sure small businesses are aware of the facade grants that we have. If you're in a historic district, the grant programs that we have in the city to uh, provide uh, resources to get the business off the ground. But we've got to change our permitting process. Right now, we have some small businesses that are waiting six months to a year for the paper to go through with the city. That is um, too long. Um, and as someone who has grown up in small businesses, my mom owns one. Uh, you're putting a lot of money up front to open a, a business, and a lot of people can't afford to wait a year to make that happen. So as a city, we need to streamline the paperwork. We need to streamline the process. We need to stop playing favorites and actually support everyone who's coming into Jacksonville trying to open a business. But it starts with getting people downtown. If you don't have people downtown, if you can't create the permitting and zoning changes that we need to create the, the higher density type buildings, um, none of these businesses are going to succeed because no one lives downtown, so they're not going to be able to stay open. As you run for office, you and a number of other candidates have denounced what you call 
vile and divisive campaign tactics. We see them every election cycle. We do. TV ads, they're all over the airwaves. Mailers, our mailboxes are full of them. Uh, we've gotten so many at our house. I I should have I should have uh, <laughs> made like a, a little collage or something to <laughs> to hang on the wall of them uh, because they really are ubiquitous. They're everywhere, and you know a lot of these mailers and ads uh, they are incredibly inflammatory and sometimes incredibly misleading. Uh, one of the funniest ads I've seen, I have to say, uh, is the one on TV saying that Leanna Cumber and Al Ferraro are two liberals mm. who are mm -hmm. bad for Jacksonville. <laughs> now, you can disagree with Leanna Cumber and Al Ferraro's campaigns and priorities, but in what world are they liberal? I, I honestly don't see that. But those are the kinds of ads and mailers that go out every season. People, uh, candidates who champion that kind of campaigning say it's what it takes to win. We even saw outgoing Mayor Lenny Curry tweet mm -hmm. saying, uh, yes, th this is what you have to do to win. This is the kind of campaigning you have to do to win. And he put out a tweet in support of this kind of political strategy. You've denounced it. Why? I've denounced it because I've always been about the facts. Um, there are I'm running against an incumbent and I don't need to go personal into attacking him on on his record. Um, everything that I've put out is is honest and it's factual and we document it with facts in terms of, uh, you know, uh, you know, his net worth has gone up 30 percent, 35 percent in the past three and a half years since he's been on the council. He's gotten a, over one hundred forty thousand dollars in uh, you know donations from developers. He hasn't addressed the housing crisis. He's waste management chair, but we have a waste management system that's insolvent. We double tax the beaches and we just had to put thirty two million dollars of our general revenue fund, our taxpayer dollars into the waste management system to fund it. These are facts. He just launched an attack on me in a mail mail piece, two of them actually that were full of lies. He doesn't even uh, back up those lies with any factual information. It's just the same old, uh, I'm a scary, you know, Democrat. Um, you shouldn't vote for him because, you know, he's going to do all of this at the city. Um, and it's just not based in fact. So I denounce uh, negative campaigning because I believe um, when you have candidates out there all speaking truth and all motivating the community and talking about local issues, um, that will turn out the vote. So let me reiterate, we have invited your opponent, Councilman Ron Salem, to appear He's been on this program actually a number of times. And so uh, early voting's underway now. Election day is March 21st. We just heard from our pollster this is going to be a very low turnout election. Whether it's a Democrat like you running or a Republican or an MPA, how difficult has it been uh, as you go around Duval County trying to motivate people to get out and vote? It has been difficult. And quite frankly, that's why I got in so early. My campaign's about people. It's about community. It's not about the partisan politics that divide us. I believe strongly that local government should be about our neighbors and our community and what we can do best to lift up all of our lives. That does not have an RD or an MPA behind it. Um, so it's been difficult because folks feel left behind here in this community because you, uh, you see politicians get elected and they immediately turn their back on the community. Um, as a nonprofit professional, I roll up my sleeves every day to try to help people, and that's what I want to bring to the city council. We've watched my opponent for three and a half years back the mayor on almost everything, back the governor um, as a major donor to him on everything. We need change. We need someone who's going to use their voice and not just be a vote on the council, and I think that is mobilizing the vote. I'm encouraged by what we're seeing with early turnout. We've had about uh, 2,600 more Democrats vote than Republicans to date. Um, and the poll last week uh, by UNF has me only one point down 41.40 to my incumbent opponent. To be running against an incumbent who's in the low 40s in the polls, I think that speaks volumes to the job he's doing. Thanks for appearing. Joshua Hicks running Absolutely. for City Council at Large Group 2. Thank you. Thanks, Melissa.
Well, every spring, it's a tradition in this city. Hundreds of hungry diners converge on the Prime Osborne Convention Center in downtown Jacksonville so they can sample delicious recipes offered up by local celebrities. The 37th Annual Celebrity Chefs Tasting and Silent Auction is coming up March 23rd. That's next Thursday. I'm very excited to announce I'm going to be serving up a recipe myself. Nisi Lee is president-elect of the Women's Auxiliary of the Salvation Army here in Northeast Florida, and she's here now with a preview. Good morning. Good morning, Melissa. Good to see you. We are looking forward to your delicious carrot cake with spice cream frosting. I Look, look, well, I got to tell you, Nisi, it's almost Easter time, right? So that's why I thought, okay, what would be a good spring recipe? And that's what I always serve. My mom used to always serve angel food cake on Easter Sunday, and I liked it, but I decided as I started cooking the dinners myself when I got older, I like carrot cake better on Easter Sunday. It just, to me, it just sounds and feels like spring. So just, that's what I'm making. Just a few more calories than angel food cake. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it's one of my favorites. And I, I made it for an Easter brunch at a friend's house in Springfield last year and everybody liked it. So I'm really excited to bring this recipe. It's actually not my recipe. It's Molly Ye's recipe on the Food Network. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I've made it so many times that I kind of think of it as my own. But uh, but yeah, I'll be joining a lot of other interesting people for this event. So tell us more about how Celebrity Chefs works. Well, <clears throat> we, we've had the hard job of tasting recipes from about a dozen different Celebrity Chefs. And these actually are celebrities. They're business owners. They're uh, folks in our community that make a difference, and like yourself. And so um, we ask them to submit three recipes each, and then we have the hard job of actually cooking those recipes, tasting them, and coming up with a menu for the day. Now, we have our event at the Prime Osborne Convention Center, so they have a catering uh, arm called Saver. Saver will cook them, and then these celebrities will actually serve them at our luncheon. Yeah, yeah. I'll be serving up the carrot cake. You've got some other notables, Ron Autry of Autry Research, Terrence Freeman, current president of the city council, uh, Nicole Thomas, president Baptist Medical Center, and others. Yes. So it's an interesting group. What else is going to be on the menu? Well, we have a beautiful menu put together. We start off with an appetizer of meatballs, which actually is uh, Joe Heinrich, the new um, president and CEO of uh, CSX, and then... We have a couple of salads. Um, Rob Storm, the co-owner of the Jacksonville Sharks, yeah. is uh, going to be there. I, I hear he's going to bring some of his sharks with him. <laughs> What's and he then, making? He actually has um, allowed us to select a recipe for him. Oh, okay. It'll be a savor salad, so I'm sure it'll be delicious. Okay. But I tell you, one of our other salads is really sweet. Um, Andrea Williams from Florida Blue wrote up a little um, snippet for our newsletter, and she says, I'm thankful to showcase some of my heritage and what we call good eating. And her mm. recipe is sliced tomato and cucumber salad. She says it's one of her favorite meals. And her grandmother had a small garden in her backyard and often had Tupperware with sliced cucumbers and matas sitting in vinegar with just the right amount of pepper. That sounds good. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. those are the kind of things. We love to hear the stories behind the recipes. But we do have some international entrees. And you mentioned Ron Autry, who is... Mm -hmm phenomenal chef in his own right. Uh, it's a hobby for him, but he just got back from Italy, and his recipe is eggplant parmesan. I oh, cannot nice. wait to actually taste that. Um, we've got some carnitas, and um, I actually made for our tasting Nani's cornbread, which is Paige Hakimian's recipe. So um, one of my least favorite um, is just a personal thing, but it's called pickled carrots, and they're really sweet, and I had sort of a negative attitude about them but they People were probably either love them or hate them they were delicious and that's nicole thomas's okay so well now this is the kind of event that's sort of like world of nations right you, you with your ticket you can go around and sample every station exactly um we'll have a dozen stations set up um you will be able to uh, pick and choose it is a tasting you know but you never leave hungry and along the way we have a silent auction that you can visit and uh, amazing gifts that we have put together, gift baskets, themed gift baskets. And, you know, one person's trash is another person's treasure. We get a lot of items for our auction from our Adult Rehabilitation Center um, that's located on Beach Boulevard. 
we've got some amazing um, antiques that have been collected there. And we'll I be, have bought items those. in that thrift store over the years, and I've donated items yes. over the years. We yeah. have got some phenomenal things. I mean, Chinese urns that are five feet tall. We've got actually a few mink stoles if anybody's headed up north. Oh, wow. Um, we've got some minks um, that are going to be um, auctioned. And um, gift certificates, dining gift certificates, sports and entertainment. If you're a golfer, a lot of rounds of golf available. And um, one other new element that we are doing, and I'm excited about this, is called a balloon blast. Um, my sister, Michelle Kennard, actually has um, a business, Origami Owl, and we are allowing people to purchase a box of jewelry. It'll be a surprise when you open it, but it'll be a value of about $50. And um, so that's sort of a new element. Now, to get your tickets to the upcoming Celebrity Chefs 37th Annual Tasting and Silent Auction, you can go to your website, right? Uh, uh, let's, let's get that information out, and then we'll do our ticket giveaway. Yes. How can people get their tickets? Well, if you have access to a computer, you can go to www.salvationarmynefl, that's for Northeast Florida, dot org. The tickets okay. are $40, and um, if, you, if it's easier to call, you can call 904-301-4841. And last but not least, you could show up at the door yeah. and buy them at the door. But It's we... a lunchtime event exactly. at the Prime Osborne, March 23rd. So, folks, does this uh, have your appetite whetted? Guess what? We have two pairs of tickets to give away right now. To the 37th Annual Celebrity Chefs Tasting and Silent Auction, Thursday, March 23rd at noon at the Prime Osborne Convention Center. Come out and meet me and all the others. We'll be serving up delicious, tasty items. If you want a pair of tickets, email us right now at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org to win a pair of tickets to Celebrity Chefs. We will pick two winners at random, and your tickets will be available at We'll call and we'll see you there next Thursday. So, Nisi, thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you, Melissa. We couldn't do this without our sponsors. So I don't want to be remiss in thanking all of our sponsors. She's Nisi Lee, president-elect of the Women's Auxiliary of the Salvation Army of Northeast Florida. And send us those emails to win a pair of tickets to Celebrity Chefs coming up next Thursday. I'm going to be serving up some carrot cake just in time for Easter, Passover, and spring celebrations. So I look forward to seeing you all there. A quick break, and up next, we'll recap all of the action at the Players' Championship and more. Don't go away. NPR. Let's talk about the public in National Public Radio. It means a lot. More diverse voices that really reflect America. More stories that resonate with you, your friends, and family. More stories from your community. And it also means we rely on your support to make it all happen. Do your part today by donating to this station right now. Please call 353-9528 or visit wjct.org radio. When banks all got conservative during the pandemic, the government gave low interest loans to stimulate small businesses. It is now time to pay those loans back. Businesses that really haven't recovered the entirety of their business are now commencing payments on uh, loans that they took to get through a really, really uncertain time. I'm Kai Rizdal, striking midnight on the loan clock next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6, here on WJCT News 89.9. 
On the next Fresh Air, veterinarian Karen Fine talks about 30 years of learning from animals, how they adapt to losing a limb, how some respond to acupuncture and Chinese herbal supplements, and how they sense and accept death when the time comes. Her book is The Other Family Doctor. Join us. Today at noon on WJCT News 89.9. Congress doesn't often use its power to overturn a law passed by those representing the nation's capital. So why did it intervene this time? Next time on 1A, what persuaded national lawmakers from both sides of the aisle to sink a 16-year effort to overhaul a criminal code written 100 years ago? Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome back. Well, the Players' Championship has concluded, and there is a new number one golfer in the world as Scotty Scheffler took home the big win at TPC Sawgrass. Of course, they battled some rain, too, out there, and a visit from the governor. Plus, the Jaguars have secured two key roles as the new league year is set to begin. Josh Torres is here to talk sports. Hey, good morning. Hey there, Melissa. Good to see you. So the players is over. Lots of excitement out there uh, at TPC. We've got a new number one golfer. How did you enjoy the tournament and the weekend out there? Yeah, I mean, Melissa, no matter what, it's always, it's such a fun weekend to be out there because you really can just walk around, take in everything. There's always, always local food that are out there. So you can always grab a quick bite to eat from one of our great local restaurants here in Jacksonville and the St. Augustine area. So it's always a great time to be out there. But then on top of that, you do have what is considered the unofficial fifth major in the on the PGA Tour, which is the players. And yeah, Scotty Scheifler, he it came into the tournament ranked number two in the world, uh, right behind Spanish golfer John Rahm. But unfortunately, John had to withdraw from the tournament due to an undisclosed illness. Uh, he only made it through the, fir- uh, the first day of play before pulling out. And because of that, now Scotty Scheifler is the new number one ranked golfer in the world and took home the big trophy. And really, I mean, he came into the final day. He was one stroke ahead. And he even said after the tournament, my focus that today was just don't make mistakes. Keep doing what you've been doing and just take it one step at a time. And that is exactly mm-hmm. what he did. Uh, the golfer who was right behind him was only one stroke back. Scotty ended up winning by, I believe it was five strokes. So he w- he finished the tournament 17 shots under par. Really big, really, really big lead. And he really just, he looked completely in control throughout the final day of the tournament. Took home the big prize. Took home a lot of prize money. After looking at some of those prize winnings, Melissa, I realized whenever I decide to have a child, I need to make sure they get into golf. Yeah. The, the person, <laughs> Melissa, the person who finished yeah. 75th, the 75th finisher made $50,000. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you can make it work, you can uh, take oh, home a nice oh, purse or two. That's oh, for sure. Oh, big time. And then on top of that, over the weekend, there was also some history made as the famous 17th hole, the island hole. Three different golfers made a hole in one on that hole. Is the first time since the players start playing at TPC Sawgrass that has ever happened. And so there was a lot of cheers coming on from that hole to the point where you could hear it from the media center, which is a quite a bit of a distance from. So it was it was still great to see. Great weekend overall, and it was a fun tournament. And congratulations to Scotty for being for winning and being the new number one ranked golfer in the world. Congrats to him. All right, let's talk about the Jaguars quickly. They have secured two key roles as the new league year is set to begin. This Wednesday, two important pieces of their their puzzle. Yeah, they uh, got some good news as receiver Calvin Ridley, who they acquired in a trade from the Atlanta Falcons, was reinstated to the NFL by the commissioner. He had been suspended indefinitely uh, from a 2021 because he took time off from the Atlanta Falcons in, cor- in order to f- work on his own mental health, which is a great thing to be able to stand up and say, I need help. I need to step away so I can focus on this. But during that time, he did make some bets on NFL games and NBA games as well. And specifically in the NFL, he made bets on the Falcons, which is a big, big no-no. And so he was put on the commissioner's exempt list 
throughout the 2022 season. The Jaguars still acquired him in a trade with the Falcons, and he has been reinstated by the commissioner. And this is a big, 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 big thing for them because now they have a plethora of receivers for Trevor Lawrence to uh, throw to. And Calvin Ridley even himself said, when essentially asked, like, hey, what does it mean getting to play with Trevor Lawrence? He said, if we have the connection I think we're going to have, I can guarantee the Jags fans I'm going to have 1,400 yards this upcoming season. Wow. And then on top of that, they put the franchise tag on tight end Evan Ingram. Uh, another big thing, he had a career year this year. They were looking to see if they could get him on a long-term deal, but ultimately decided to give him the franchise tag, which is usually, you know, hey, we can't really make it work this year, but we want you to show us that, that it wasn't just a fluke year. Show us that this next year is going to be just as good, and if so, we are going to give you that long-term deal. And so those are two big pieces that they got done. Okay, before we say goodbye, let's check in on your March Madness brackets. Oh, yes. I filled all mine out yesterday. I always make a couple just to kind of really make sure I'm in there. But it's going to be a great tournament. I mean, there's a reason why they call it March Madness. It's because it is absolute madness trying to figure out who is going to win. I always tell people, you got to really think outside the box in some of these picks and really look into do you think there's going to be an upset here? And so that's how usually I make my brackets. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, the tournament starts tomorrow with the first four in uh, play-in tournaments, and then we get into the big the big dance later this week. And it's going to be great. It's going to be such a good matchup. Really, my two biggest picks are obviously the University of Houston and then the University of Alabama. I know Alabama is really known as a football school, but they have been playing some fantastic basketball this year. And... I just really see them going all the way. They absolutely dominated yesterday in the SEC tournament. And I really wouldn't doubt Alabama, but Houston's another really good pick. And then a dark horse I have is Duke. Duke really, mm -hmm. I mean, their first year without Coach K, they've really still stepped up to the plate and have made a really, really big impact in the ACC. And so I have them as a dark horse pick also. All right, we'll see. Always good to talk with you. Thanks, Josh. Thank you, Melissa. And thanks, everyone. David Luckin is our executive producer. Senior producer is Heather Schatz. Our production staff also consists of the great producers, Brendan Rivers and Bridget O'Brien. Our director is Isabella Da Silva, with technical help from our Morning Edition host, Michelle Corum. I'm Melissa Ross. We'll be back at 9 a.m. tomorrow. Make it a great day. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.